Hope you had a great, wonderful Christmas celebration. Uh, we're now in that time of annual reflection and review as we head toward making resolutions and commitments on what we plan to do differently next year. To be honest, I've never really been a big New Year's holiday fan. I'm not into the big parties or the big celebrations. In fact, even when I was living in New York, going to Times Square on New Year's Eve was like a, a horrible idea to me. It was the furthest place I wanted to be. And that was when I was in my 20s, and I had a lot more energy than I do right now. But I do believe that New Year's Day has the potential to be an important milestone. Milestones are important events that happen on our journey in life. And milestones have the potential to be life-changing. It can be an occasion that marks a clear boundary where things will be completely different after this event. In my last message, I called these events from now on moments. It indicates that a significant change has happened with God's plan for your life and that from now on, things will never be the same. And I think that's a healthy way to approach the new year. And my prayer is that this year, that this is the year that we all see the breakthrough that we've been longing for in our personal lives, in our families, and even here as a congregation. And this year, there's a, an added level of significance. We're not just ringing in a new year. We're ringing in a new decade. And there's no shortage right now of the best of 2010s list, the best movies, the best songs, top news stories, best books. But I think it's important that we make our own best of lists, and not just on how we did on our goals. Did we lose the weight we wanted to lose? Did we save enough money? Did we pay off debt? but also to take a spiritual inventory for the purpose of looking forward to next year and beyond. It's important because the choices we make, the things that we commit ourselves to have eternal consequences, not just for us, but also for those we love and for those who depend on us. And when we slow down and reflect, if we're honest, we know that none of us is guaranteed tomorrow. Time is of the essence, and the stakes are very high indeed, because every moment matters. And every moment can be a milestone. My text today is Joshua chapter 24, but before we go to the text, as always, let's set the scene to understand the context if you remember my message in September, we focused on Joshua chapter 1, and that was where Joshua uh, inherits the leadership of the nation of Israel as he prepares to take them into the promised land and possess it. Today we come full, full circle. This is the end of Joshua's life. About 35 years have passed since then, and this is what Joshua says about those intervening years. Joshua 23. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. There's two, mis two big misconceptions of the book of Joshua. First is that it's a a biography of a, of a godly and courageous person that we should model ourselves after. And Joshua is a great guy. 
Uh, another misconception is that it's, it's a book of military, uh, record, a military record of strategies and tactics. And the reality is that in the book of Joshua, God is the hero and the focus of the narrative. The military strategies recorded are God's. They're, they're not Joshua's. God's the one who engineered those victories. In fact, Joshua's name means the Lord saves. His name itself points away from himself to God. And the book of Joshua is saturated with God's grace. And its main purpose is to show that the faithfulness of God, that he is a covenant-keeping God who fulfills all of his promises. And my hope today in this message is that as we hear God, how God spoke to the people of Israel through Joshua, we would hear it as a fresh word for ourselves today. And that also we would be provoked in our spirits with a sense of urgency to love the Lord, to worship the Lord, and to obey the Lord like never before. Now with this context in mind, let's go to our text. And the first thing we need to make the most of every moment is we need to remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. I want you to notice the significance of some of the details here as the scene opens in Joshua chapter 24. Verse 1, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. Now, does Shechem ring a bell? Joshua called a meeting here at Shechem, which is an important place in Israel's history. Geography is an essential part of our history, and I think when we, when we think of certain locations, we can immediately recall to our mind the events that took place there. Here are some examples that may be familiar or significant to us. Gettysburg, Pearl Harbor, Tiananmen Square, Columbine, Haiti. Now when Israel's leaders were called to Shechem, there was a familiar significance that came to their minds as well. It would have reminded them of God's original promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were living in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. In Genesis 33, Shechem is the place where Jacob settles safely after reconciling with his brother Esau. In Genesis 37, Shechem is where Jacob sends his son Joseph to check on his brothers who are pasturing the flocks. And this is right before Joseph is sold into slavery. And there's a sense of coming full circle here at this meeting. This is where it all began. This was a place of importance. It was a place of milestones. Back to Joshua 24. Next, notice who the attendees are in verses 1 and 2. This isn't just a regular staff meeting, but this is a meeting with God himself. And for the next 11 verses, God gives them a reminder. He gives them just a few of the highlights of all that he's done for Israel. How he called Abram out of Mesopotamia. How he led Abram to the promised land of Canaan. How he gave Abram offspring. How Jacob went down to Egypt how he sent Moses and Aaron to deliver the people of Egypt through the Red Sea, and even now how he, prom how he brought them to the promised land and how he delivered them and defeated all the opposing people groups. And as you read this history, you can't miss how clear it is that it's God who called them, 
God is the one who provided. God is the one who has delivered. And this makes sense when you understand that the covenant that God made with Abraham was unconditional. It was an unconditional promise. The covenant God made with Abraham is one where God initiates it, and because of that, he takes the responsibility to be sure that it is fulfilled. One of the best ways I can think about illustrating this is to look at the covenants in your own life. If you're a parent, you know this instinctively. Becky and I have three sons, and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to take care of my family. I will provide and make sure that my children have food to eat. It's unconditional. It's not dependent on how well they behave, on how well they're doing in school, if the room's clean or not, if they had a good day or bad day. I'm going to provide unconditionally for them. And it's important to remember who God is and what he's done for us. Israel, throughout their history, from the time of Exodus from Egypt, they'd been a complaining, grumbling, murmuring people. And Joshua had seen firsthand throughout his life the hard struggles that the Israelites dealt with. Time and again, they are faithless. They fail to keep their end of the bargain. And that's a picture that should cause all of us to pause. But listen, let's not be so quick to judge the Israelites. Many of us struggle with the same thing today. I wish I could say that I always had a grateful attitude for the good life that I've been given. But I know it's not always true. See, sometimes we need help seeing the goodness of God in our own lives. One of our Christmas traditions is to, on Christmas Eve, usually like at 1 o'clock in the morning, we watch It's a Wonderful Life, starring Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed. Now, For me, it's one of those movies that speaks something new and fresh to me every, every year. Now, the movie tells the story of George Bailey, who, who sacrificed his education and his dream of adventure to, to stay home and run the family business and to, and to help others. But as we know, sacrifice always comes with a personal cost. Over time, George becomes angry and bitter for the way his life has turned out. In an important plot twist, when George Bailey's sacrifices become too much to bear, he finds himself on Christmas Eve, on a bridge with a bloody lip and a measly life insurance policy, and he starts to believe that he's worth more dead than he is alive. And thank heavens for Clarence Oddbody, his guardian angel, who rescues George and shows him all the lives he's touched and how different his community of Bedford Falls would be if he'd never been born. See, God uses used these impossible circumstances to show George Bailey that he actually had a wonderful life. And it gave George a new perspective, one of gratefulness. See, gratitude is essential because there's nothing that we have that we didn't receive. And that's what God is trying to tell the Israelites and to us. Joshua 24, verse 13, God says, I gave you a land on which... You had not labored in cities that you had not built and dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. God is reminding them that they have a wonderful life. From their very beginning, as God's people, he has been with them every step of the way. And here, 
in the midst of having it all, when everything in the world is right, when every promise that God had made has been fulfilled, now more than ever, Joshua reminds them to remember the Lord. And that's an important reminder for us today. We need to remember the Lord. As Phil said last week, the comfort and the prosperity that we enjoy this Christmas season is an amazing demonstration of God's grace and generosity that many of our brothers and sisters across the world do not experience. We are a blessed people. Let us never forget who we belong to and that there's nothing that we have that we didn't receive. Moses had warned the Israelites in Deuteronomy 8, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. We need to remember the Lord. And the second thing we need to do to make the most of every moment is we need to fear the Lord. Joshua 24, 14 starts off, Now, therefore, based on everything that I've just said, therefore, fear the Lord. Now, this is a a biblical theme that you don't hear much about today. Joshua has summarized and given them the highlights of God's grace throughout Israel's history. He now says that in light of God's protection, in light of God's generosity, in light of God's blessings and victories, he explains to Israel how to properly respond. He begins by commanding them to fear the Lord. And One of the things that strikes me as I was preparing for this message is that, excuse me, the, the fear of the Lord is an important theme that runs throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. The word fear is used 308 times in the Old Testament and 47 times in the New Testament. What is the fear of the Lord? It's almost always interpreted as fear in the sense of being afraid. The Greek word for fear in the New Testament is where we get our word phobia. And part of the problem with understanding the fear of the Lord is it's often misunderstood and misinterpreted. And one of the best treatments that I've seen on this topic is the book, When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. It's a fantastic book that gets to the heart of how the fear of man, is, which is expressed as peer pressure, codependency, has paralyzed many Christians. And that's the premise of the title. Things have gotten reversed for many of us. We tend to give people the bigger role in our lives. It should just belong to God only. In the book, he does a wonderful job of explaining that the fear of the Lord is actually a spectrum of attitudes. And you'll see that on the chart here. On the left side, there is terror fear, which is the fear of one's physical safety. And one of the most common phrases in Scripture when people are in the presence of God is, fear not. Genesis 15, God tells Abraham not to fear. Not to fear. In Daniel 10, when the angel shows up to, Ab- to, to Daniel, he tells him, do not be afraid. And just this past week in the Christmas narrative we just celebrated in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah and to Mary, and he tells them both, do not be afraid. Yes, Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. 
but he's also the God who sustains the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the perfect spotless lamb, but he's also the conquering lion of Judah. But notice here on the right side of the chart, as Christians, as we walk with the Lord daily, we're growing further and further away from terror fear. And as Christians, as we walk further, we, the reason for that is because it's because of the gospel. 1 John 4, 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. See, we don't live in camp out in terror fear anymore because we don't have to worry about punishment. Jesus already bore the punishment for our sins on the cross. And for us as New Testament believers, the fear of the Lord should be drawing us closer in intimacy and in relationship and in fellowship with the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord should cause us to run to Him, not run away from Him. But as we've grown in our appreciation and focus on worship fear, we've unfortunately completely jettisoned the terror fear of the Lord. And we need both in the church today. Because when we overemphasize the fear of the Lord just as honor and respect, we're not giving the full picture. And if we're not careful, we can go too far toward the fear of man where we try to soften God and make him more palatable. Even today, some prominent Christian leaders are saying we should stop teaching from the Old Testament. We need to stop apologizing for the majesty and the power of God. We want him to be safe and we want him to be manageable. But listen, that's not the testimony of the Bible. Speaking of Jesus, this is what Isaiah says in chapter 11, verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Speaking of the New Testament church in Acts 9, Luke writes, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And speaking of our personal discipleship, Philippians 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In honor of Pastor Tim, I have the perfect illustration. In the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, Susan and Lucy Pevensey are getting ready to meet Aslan the lion, who represents Jesus Christ. And two talking animals, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, prepare, for, prepare the children for the encounter. Ooh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver. And make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or, that's just, or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Mary. 
Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. In Revelation 1.17, John the apostle, who was the closest to Jesus, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. It says that when Jesus appeared to him, he fell down at Jesus' feet as though dead. This is an appropriate response to the God of the universe. And as we grow in the fear of the Lord, as we behold his glory, his majesty, it should affect everything. How we think about God, how we pray, how we talk about God. And speaking of how we talk about God, it's sometimes too casual and too familiar. You see it on social media. You hear it in the way politicians on both sides invoke the name of God. And you hear it on the Christian music radio stations. Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Listen, God's word and God's name is not just some lucky charm or spell that we invoke. The third commandment says that we should not take the Lord's name in vain. That means that we should not misuse his name. We should never speak of him in a way that would dishonor him. As you heard, we've got some, in the announcement video, we've got some upcoming Bible studies that are going to be great in a few weeks. And I hope men and women come out and engage with Scripture and make some connections. And and as you start the new year, I hope you're getting into a great Bible reading plan. It's going to be a great time with these Bible studies. But as we head into those studies, I want to give a, a bit of a helpful reminder, a bit of a guardrail, if you will. Often there are are real disagreements on how to interpret a particular word, uh, a particular passage, and and that's completely expected and appropriate. But one of the things that can often happen if we're not careful is that we begin to see ourselves as the authority on a particular verse means. Listen, I've been guilty of this myself over the years. This is what we say sometimes. What this verse means to me is dot, dot, dot. I'm sorry, but we don't get to do that with the Bible. Rather, we are to discover what God, working through the human author, intended it to mean. And part of fearing the Lord is to be very careful to be sure that we don't speak where God is not speaking. Please hear me. It's something he takes very seriously. Revelation 22, 18 says, This is Jesus saying, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Proverbs verse 30 says, Chapter 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Every time we speak about God, whether in the pulpit, whether we're ministering in the supernatural, whether we're teaching our children, every time should be infused with a healthy fear of the Lord. 
And in verse 14, Joshua is speaking from personal experience. He has seen God's incredible fear-inducing power up close and personal. He lived through the exodus out of Egypt, and he saw firsthand the ten plagues on the Egyptians. And listen, in the age of veggie tales, we can easily forget just how horrific those plagues were. Joshua saw the Red Sea part and swallow Pharaoh's army. On Mount Sinai, Joshua experienced firsthand the cloud and the fire and the manifest, tangible presence of God. Joshua lived through these incredible milestone moments in Israel's history. And he knows the proper response to these milestones is to fear the Lord. We need to remember the Lord. We need to fear the Lord. And our third way to make the most of every moment is we need to serve the Lord. Joshua 24, back to verse 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, one of the techniques that biblical authors use to make their point is repetition. So anytime you see a word repeated, you need to pay attention. In verses 14 and 15 here, the word serve is viewed seven times in in two short verses. So what we have here is a huge signal flare going, going up right now saying, look at me, look at me. And Joshua here is prophetically calling out the idol worship in the midst of Israel. He tells them to put away the gods both of their ancestors and of the local gods of the promised land. And idol worship was a persistent snare to the people of Israel from the very beginning. Joshua then uses some strong language to drive his point home. Here in verse 15, he tells them, if they consider it evil to serve the Lord, then they need to choose. They need to choose today. They need to choose right now which God they're going to serve. I know it sounds absurd, but the point that Joshua is making is that everyone serves some God. There's no middle ground. And there's a powerful sense of urgency here. Joshua knows that his time is short. This is the last time that he's going to be speaking to the people of Israel. He's saying, choose today. We heard last week that Christmas is not just an event. It's the beginning of a new story that we have a part to play in. And to be a follower of Jesus means we choose not in a single prayer and, uh, and so we can go to heaven, but every single day to follow him. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Choose this day. In every day, every relationship, in every situation, we have a choice to make. We choose to go to work when we hate our job. We choose to do the laundry when we'd rather sit and watch Netflix. We choose to be offended when we feel wronged. We choose to forgive and bless our enemies. Please hear me. It's in the daily grind of life that we're choosing who we will serve. Every moment matters. Nothing is wasted. 
as is often the case, pop culture can sometimes be a means to communicate a biblical truth that would otherwise be rejected. One of the most influential artists of the last 50 years is the singer-songwriter Bob Dylan. And he's won a slew of awards, and just here in 2016, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. And one of the things that people don't know about Bob Dylan is that very publicly, he became a born-again Christian in 1979. And he won the Grammy for uh, Best Male Vocalist for his song, Gotta Serve Somebody. And I looked it up this week, and the video footage of that performance at the Grammys, Grammys is just electrifying. It, it, it's, it, it's a tour de force that'll give you chills as you see rock royalty and music royalty standing and cheering for that song. Later, I highly recommend that you watch that. But the point that Dylan is making is in this song that no matter who you are, regardless of your station in life, we will serve something or someone. Here's a brief excerpt. You may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you might live in a dome. You might own guns and you might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. And in the video, in a sly evangelistic move in the last chorus, he changes one key word and he says, instead of saying it may be the Lord, he says it can be the Lord. And in that song, Dylan captures what Joshua is prophetically speaking to the Israelites. Everyone chooses a God. We all serve someone. We all have something ultimate that we pour out our lives to. We may not serve Baal or a golden calf but we all serve somebody. And in this 21st century culture, it has its own set of idols that are temptation. In the book, Counterfeit God, subtitled, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and The Only Hope That Matters, Tim Keller does an amazing job of explaining and diagnosing the temptations and challenges that we face with modern idolatry. And he makes a case about traditional idol worship of statues and shrines is, is practiced in some parts of the world, Internal worship idol in the heart is universal. In Ezekiel 14, 13, speaking of Israel's elders, God says, these men have set up idols in their hearts. And the point that Keller is making is an idol is anything that is more important to you than God. Right? These counterfeit gods can be anything that is so central, so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would be hardly worth living. And these are often good things that have become ultimate things in our life. Having a good, a good family and raising su successful children. Having a successful career and financial security. Ha having a healthy body. But Romans 125 says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And it all starts with a lie. Somewhere along the way, our hearts and imaginations have been captivated by something that cannot give us life. And the danger with these counterfeit gods is that whatever we fear, whatever we worship, that's what we're going to serve. And in the precious moments of our lives, that's what we'll give our time, talent, and treasure to. And one of the takeaways from this message, I hope for all of us, is that God would reveal any idols 
in our hearts, anything that is keeping us from relationship with Him. And listen, I believe that God delights in setting us free. And if you're like me, sometimes you're not even aware of what those things are. And if that's you, here's an answer to that problem. Pray. Pray the end of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Pray that regularly, and I promise God will show you. And Joshua concludes this passage with the famous line in verse 15, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua speaks as a priest of his family, and he declares that his family will serve the Lord. You'll notice here that the English tense is a future tense, but one commentator notes that in the Hebrew, the tense has a fuller meaning. It expresses continuous action. It involves the future, but it can also point to the past. Joshua was boldly affirming, I have chosen and I will choose. And Joshua has demonstrated over a long life that he's true to his word. In verse 14, Joshua describes how we should serve the Lord in sincerity and in faithfulness. Joshua boldly calls for a true commitment and a deep commitment. On Friday, we celebrated the homegoing of Joe Vincent. I'd already committed to preaching this text for today when we got the news last Sunday. And I can't think of a better way to illustrate what Joshua is saying in this passage. Joe was a man who served the Lord faithfully. He served as an elder of New Life Church for almost 25 years, which is over half the time that New Life Church has existed. Joe was a man who served sincerely. He was an encourager and a man you could trust. And when he told you he would pray for you, you could take it to the bank. And Joe was a man whose house is serving the Lord. His children and grandchildren are following in his footsteps by serving faithfully and sincerely. Joe Vincent lived an amazing life and has left us a great example to follow. But Joe would not want us to end today by focusing on him. Both Joshua's and Joe Vincent's lives are, are lives of service. Their lives are milestones that point us to Jesus, who's the ultimate servant. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus chose the cross out of love, and he offers you forgiveness, freedom, and the chance to know him and live with him forever. Today can be your milestone. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Choose this day whom you will serve, because every moment matters. Father, we thank you for your goodness. God, we thank you that you are a covenant-keeping God who always, always 
keeps his promises. Father, here on the cusp of a, a new year, a new decade, God, I pray that you would speak to us. Father, I pray that you would speak to your people, that, Lord, that you would give them a vision of what you have in store for them, God, of what your plans and purposes are for 2020, God. Lord, we praise you, Lord. We worship you. I thank you, Lord, for, Lord, your faithfulness, Lord, for your kindness, for, Lord, your mercy that never fails us. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.